Give me a ticket for an airplane. I ain't got time to take no fast train. Oh, the lonely days are gone. I'm coming home. Well, my baby, she wrote me a letter. I've got to spend I will find my way Way back home again Oh, the lonely days are gone Now I'm coming home Cause my baby, she wrote me That's kind of a weird offertory song. I don't know why they sing these songs. Um, <laughs> this is uh, the first sermon of a three-part mini-series on reading your Bible. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that you would help us now to preach. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. Now, them is the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. So that's a pretty incredible statement. The gospel was preached to them. The gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith or trust or belief. Uh, faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest. As he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished, finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Remember the promised land was given to the Israelites, but they didn't enter. They didn't enter because they not, did, not, did not believe that God is salvation. They believed that they were salvation, so they did not enter the promised rest. The prophets like Ezekiel, Jeremiah, St. Paul, even Jesus uh, seem to say pretty clearly that they will enter that rest, but no one enters until they cease from their works and believe. Verse 6, since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying in David, this, the Psalms, today, after such a long time as it has been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua, in Greek, Jesus, so it should be pronounced Jesus, for if Jesus had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he, has entered his, for he who has entered his rest has himself ceased from his works, ergon, as God did from his. Let us, therefore, be diligent. Let us work or let us strive, weird thought, to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and energos, at work, uh, active. So he's saying, rest, cease from your work, for the word of God is at work. Verse 12, the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Literally the word, to whom we must surrender the word. Well, I doubt that you got all that. 
But you're probably familiar with that last part. The, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged machaira. Uh, machaira was the Roman short sword, or simply just a large knife. A knife. Uh, the Word of God, a knife. And yet countless times I've fallen asleep on that knife. I'm literally a full-on face plant right into the open word of God, and I was not cut. Especially in junior high. I remember many times in junior high, I just told myself I would do my devotions, and then I'd wake up like at 3 in the morning, peeling those onion skin pages off of my oily face, you know, with nothing to show for my devotion except for oil prints throughout the book of Romans. Hardly a sharp two-edged sword. I tried to study it. I mean, just like I tried to do my homework, but I wasn't very good at reading. I was in the slow group uh, in elementary school at reading. In high school, I went out of my way to avoid literature class. I only took the literature classes that were required because literature just seemed so dull and boring, and the Bible is literature. Scripture hardly seemed sharp, but, but, but even if it was sharp, why would that make you want to read it? I mean, seriously, the machaira was used by the priests in the temple to cut animals apart in order to lay them naked and exposed upon the altar where they would be consumed by eternal fire as an offering to God. God that, that sounds fun. <laughs> That'll help me fall asleep. Um, every night before bed, Get cut to the division of soul and spirit and get devoted. By the way, that's what devoted means in the Bible. Offered as an offering to God. How on earth could that help you fall asleep? How on earth could that help you enter rest? The Word of God, living and active, sharper than any two-edged machaira. So anyway, the author of Hebrews writes, strive to enter his rest and then prescribes the Word. Well, number one, how do you strive to rest? How do you rest to work? And number two, how does the word cut? What is the word? What's the word of God? In Hebrews 4, the word of God seems to refer to that which God spoke to, spoke to the Israelites in the desert, which is recorded as Scripture in the Old Testament. And it seems to refer to Joshua, which you know also means Jesus. It's the same word, Joshua and Jesus. And Jesus literally means, the word literally means God is salvation. In John chapter 1, we read that the word of God is God, which means God has a lot of integrity because his word is the very same thing as his being. The word of God is God and became flesh in Jesus. Even in the Old Testament, Throughout the Old Testament, the Word of God shows up as a man and does stuff, like beat up Jacob at the river Jabbok and then name him Israel. The Word of God is a person, and yet the prophets spoke the Word of God, and what they spoke is recorded as Scripture. In the New Testament, Jesus, the Word of God in flesh, says this, Scripture cannot be broken. 1 Peter 1.25, Peter writes, the word of the Lord abides forever. That word is the gospel that was preached to you. Ephesians 1.13, Paul writes, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. That means the good news of your salvation, personal gospel. So the word of God is the word that God speaks, right? That makes sense? The word God speaks, which is Jesus, which means God is salvation, which is faithfully recorded in Scripture. God is love, says Scripture. That means that uh, the word of God is the word of love, spoken to you and faithfully recorded in Scripture, the good news of your salvation. The, the word of God is the word of love given to you. Amen. And come to think of it, there was one genre of literature which I never seemed to have much trouble reading. I mean, it wasn't work, and it's always seemed to cut me like a knife. In sixth grade, and Mrs. Black's, Mrs. Black was our teacher, in sixth grade, 
she worked incredibly hard to get us to read literature, all genres of literature, um, romance, ad ad adventure, uh, poetry, mystery, but it was all dull. Every genre dull, except one. And that one genre of literature was illegal in Mrs. Black's sixth grade class, literally illegal. It, it was illegal because it was not dull. In fact, it was so exciting that it would utterly distract you from all of your assigned reading. It was dangerous, and it could cut <clears throat> like a knife into a sixth grader's heart. If Mrs. Black found literature of this type, it was taped to the classroom door in an effort to shame the participants into isolation and silence. Shame, because if you read literature that was addressed to somebody else by someone else of this genre, it just seems silly, ridiculous, and absurd, but if it was addressed to you, whew, it would cut to the vision of soul and spirit, join in marrow and discern the thoughts and intentions of your heart. It was a literary genre of personal gospel. On a few occasions, I received it by stealth, passed under the desk in front of me, and it read something like this. Dear Peter, I think you're cute. <laughs> If you like me, I like you. <laughs> if you, I mean, I remember they, she even drew a box one time. If you like me, check this box. If you don't, check this box. I'm talking love notes. The literary genre of the love letter. Good news that one of these amazing, intriguing, complex, mysterious, and fascinating creatures of the opposite sex desires you. The Bible is many things. And next week, we'll get into that in more detail. It's history, poetry, songs, parables, drama, adventure, instructions, even law and judgment, but all for the sake of gospel. Good news. God desires you. Scripture's a love letter from the prodigal father. <laughs> yeah, the prodigal father to his prodigal children saying, come home, please come home. It's a love letter from the bridegroom to his bride saying, please, would you be my home? Well, since sixth grade, I've forced myself to read. And in fact, I've kind of become an expert at studying. By the time I was in college, I got trophies for um, in, regurgitating uh, material out onto tests, uh, reading and regurgitating. And that's what I do. I mean, I was seriously put off studying for like an entire semester and then about 36 hours before the final exam, I would lock myself in a room with all of my textbooks and, and, and notes, and I would take Folgers, instant Folgers coffee crystals, I'd put them in a cup, and then I'd put just enough tap water in to make it look liquid, and then I'd drink it as quick as I could and brush my teeth so I, I wouldn't throw up. And then uh, for 36 hours, or maybe 48, I'd just like jam material into my head, dates and facts and numbers and ideas, right up to the point of the exam, then I'd go into the exam and I just blah, regurgitate it all right back onto the paper and I'd get an A. I could regurgitate really well. I was an expert regurgitator. It was absolute torture, but it was worth the price to get the grade. What price are you willing to pay to make the grade with God? Well, if you read scripture the way I read my textbooks, <laughs> you've already failed. Why? Because you're reading to comprehend the words and not letting the word comprehend you. You're reading in order to use the meaning to get a grade. You're reading in order to use the meaning and therefore you can't know the meaning. In fact, you've killed the meaning. In other words, you're not reading by grace through faith, and you certainly are not entering God's rest. Hebrews 4.2, listen again. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with trust or faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest. 
You know, all that reading in college, pelagic sedimentation, um, uh, stratigraphic variation and formation, I remember like basically none of it. I was hardly affected by any of it. In other words, it was not living and effective. $30,000 and four years of restless striving, like flushed down the toilet. None of that reading effective, except, of course, for my personal gospel reading. And by that I mean love letters. I mean these love letters right here. And it almost seems sacrilegious to say, I read these. I didn't just read these. I consumed these like a starving man consumes bread and wine. And it didn't feel like work. And, and amazingly, I was not tested uh, on these. Uh, these. It wasn't a test like that. I wasn't, I wasn't tested on these, but these letters did, they did, they tested me. They judged me. Susan and I started grading, dating in, in 11th grade, but after graduating from, from high school, we told each other, hey, when we go to college, we'll date around, right? We agreed that we would date around whomever we wanted. Susan was in Durango, I was in Boulder, and I was free to date whomever I desired. I was autonomous, I was in control, but she wrote letters. Love letters. Every couple of weeks, the whole Kittredge dormitory mailroom would smell like perfume. A few times every week. And everyone knew Peter got another love letter. Susan would send her love letters uh, soaked in perfume. And so I would take right guard stick and rub it all over <laughs> mine. In fact, I even that's a, took a picture of one of my love letters back to her. Well, while I was in, in school, I, I, began to really, I began to really miss Susan. And so when her letters would arrive, I would just d devour her letters. Of, of course, my, Ronald, my roommate, Ronald Schultz from Lakewood, Ronald, he thought the whole thing was ridiculous, the way, the way I would smell the letters and kiss the letters and sleep. I'd sleep with the letters. He thought it was ridiculous the way I'd read the letters, but, but the letters weren't addressed to him. They were addressed to me. They said, Peter, I love you. I love you. You know the word of God, according to Scripture, is the gospel of your salvation. It's the ultimate love letter applied to your heart by the very Spirit of God resident within you. It's addressed to you from God, and he is far more mysterious, intriguing, and fascinating than any girl in Mrs. Black's sixth grade class. I remember when I first caught a glimpse of that. It was on a campus life retreat at Sunlight Skier. I was sitting in the lounge with my friend Dave Jones, and the words of Romans just like started jumping off the page at me. I, I think it was because I realized it was addressed to me. God was talking to me. When Susan's love letters would come in the mail, I, I wanted to read. And when the letters jumped off the page in Romans, I, I just wanted to read. I wanted to read. Uh, when Susan's letters would come, one thing I never said is, gee, Ron, I'd really, love to, I'd really love to play ping pong with you, but I promised Susan to spend at least one hour a day in inductive study of the letters that she has sent. No! I never said that. I wanted to read them. I couldn't wait to read them. This is, this is what I do. Several years later, I took a course in seminary. I realized the whole course was basically on this. It's called Biblical Exegesis and Hermeneutics. But no one told me that I had to do this. I just, I just did this, and not to get a grade. How to read the gospel, good news addressed to you. When I get a letter from Susan, I would read it through, start to finish. How do you expect to understand a letter if you do like, like that verse for a day thing? You can't understand a letter that way. I'd read it through. Then I'd read it again and again. And then I'd go back and I'd read a sentence like this. Peter, you are so much more handsome than all your friends. 
especially Alan Parsons. <laughs> and I would think to myself, that's really a good line. That's a great line. I'll, I'll memorize that line. I'll devote it to memory. If there was a word or a phrase that I didn't understand, I'd look it up, like maximum virile hunkulosity. I'd think to myself, what, did, what does that mean? I need to investigate that word and, and look it up. I'd read the parts in terms of the whole, and I'd read the whole in terms of the parts. That's called context. I remember our unique vocabulary, the little things that we had said to each other in the past, our history. I'd think of where she was when she was writing it. That's called linguistic, historical, and cultural context and analysis. I'd picture her and the events that uh, she was talking about and where she was when she wrote them. I'd meditate on what she said till it felt like I was there. Some people call that Lectio Divina. I'd read between the lines. I mean, I'd try to commune with the spirit behind the letters. If there was something that was confusing to me or troubling to me, I'd give her a call. I'd give her a call anyway. So when you read your Bible, pray. Talk to God. See, Susan's letters were far more than just ink on a page. I didn't just study them. I ingested them and digested them. I devoured them like manna from heaven, and I never had to consciously ask myself, gosh, how should I apply this letter to my life? What are three tangible application points that can be deduced from this letter? What are three action steps? Huh, I could tell someone I have a girlfriend. Ooh, that's good. Two, I could talk to her. Yeah, that's a good one. Three, when I see her, I'll kiss her. And maybe I shouldn't kiss other girls. Maybe she'd, I never had to do that. I never had to apply the letter to my life. I, I didn't have to apply her letter. You apply makeup in order to act a part, but you ingest and digest food, and the food changes you. Jesus quoted scripture to Satan saying, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's Deuteronomy 8. That's uh, scripture. And it refers to the manna with which God sustained Israel on their journey uh, out of exile to the promised land. The word of God is manna for our journey out of exile. Ingest it. And you will digest it. The shepherd uh, feeds his sheep, you know, not so that the sheep will regurgitate the food back up on his feet. So the shepherd said, oh, good sheep, I see that you ate your food. <laughs> Don't regurgitate, John 3, 16. God's blah, 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 blah. Digest it. And let it change you. Don't just apply it to your life. Eat it and let it become your life, or better yet, God's life in you, or as you, as if you were his body. Well, I didn't apply Susan's letters. And I never took Susan's letters to an expert saying, gee, would you help me apply these letters to my life? I don't take my cheeseburgers to an expert and say, would you help me apply this cheeseburger to my life? I eat it. The shepherd's job, you know, the shepherd's job, the expert's job, is not to chew the food for the sheep. You might think my job is to build a pen for the sheep and chew the food for the, for the sheep, but, but the shepherd's job is to take the sheep on a journey and to point to the green pasture. Say, hey, you ought to go eat. You know, we just finished our series on the parables of Jesus, and I know at times it was frustrating. And you may have thought, Peter, just explain it and apply it. I've been reading the parables um, for like 50 years. I don't know anybody that can fully explain the parables. I've been reading the parables for 50 years and I can't explain them fully, but I think they're explaining me. They're creating me. They sit in me and they change me. You know, few if anyone understands food vitamins, minerals, metabolism. Few, few understand, but all eat or else they'll die. If you eat, it will change you while you're sleeping, when you're doing nothing, when you're at rest, when you're passive. Why? Because it's active. I didn't work Susan's letters, but trust me, Susan's letters worked me. In other words, I began to believe. 
But don't misunderstand. I do hope that you really work at Bible study, the hard work of Bible study, but, but only, only, only for the sake of reading the letter, not using the letter. Soren Kierkegaard said, imagine getting a letter from your beloved. But the letter was written in a, and imagine that, that the letter was written in a foreign language. Well, he argued you'd work like mad in order to get it translated. And if you were sitting in the library with a stack of translations and books on vocabulary and dictionaries uh, translating the letter, and someone walked in and said, oh, I see that you're reading the letter from your sweetheart, you'd say, no, I'm getting ready to read the letter from, from my sweetheart. I can't wait to read the letter from my sweetheart. And, and once you got it translated, he said, you go off to a room by yourself, alone with the letter, and read. The tragedy is that there are people who can parse every verb in all of Scripture but they've never read the love letter. And maybe you've allowed them to convince you that you can't read the love letter either until you're like them. Them that don't read, but only parse. Kierkegaard went on to say this, the one most qualified to determine a love letter's meaning is the one that it's addressed to. That is the one that receives it in faith. The one that doesn't seek to master the letter, but surrenders to its meaning and so is mastered by the letter. I hope you realize that we often, maybe usually, prefer control. So we often prefer cold and passive words to living and active logos or meaning. We often prefer the letter to the spirit in the letter. We often prefer words on paper to word in the flesh. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. And it's they that bear witness to me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. They prefer dead words in a book to the living word in flesh standing in their very presence. Why? Well, isn't it easier to manipulate dead words in a book? And they did manipulate the words in a book on a page in order to use that word for their own ends. Jesus also said this to them. You make void the word of God with your tradition, paradosis. It can literally be, it literally means handing over and can be translated uh, betrayal. So, so 7.13 of Mark can be translated this way. You religious leaders make void the word of God with your betrayal, betraying the word of God with all your commentaries. You remember that it was the Bible scholars that crucified Jesus, the word of God and flesh. And they did it with strictest attention to every detail of their law, their knowledge of good and evil. They crucified the living word for their knowledge of the written word. They crucified him on a tree in a garden. And I don't think that was the first time it had happened. Two years ago, I read a fascinating statement one night in the bathtub, and I actually had a heart attack right after I read it. I'm not making this up. I really did. I was reading, I was reading this book. Um, in, the, in the bathtub, James Gleick, the, the information, the science writer, I had, I had just read a, a statement. In chapter, in chapter 2, he quotes Socrates, uh, who laments the fact that words have been changed into letters. You know, before the invention of the written word, all words were kind of like living. In other words, um, a living person had to say each word. And so you experienced the word through a living person. Maybe you even saw the word or smelled the word. Mom said bread, and you experienced bread through mom, and maybe even smelled the bread she was pointing to. Someone said good, and you experienced that word in flesh. With the invention of the alphabet, living words became written words. So Socrates laments this fact in the Phaedrus, saying, the discovery of the alphabet will create forgetfulness in the learner's souls. 
you give your disciples not truth, but only a semblance of truth. In other words, not truth, but an ink mark on a page that's not the, the real thing. For example, the letters G-O-O-D. They're not good. They're only the semblance of good. With letters, you might know about the good, but you wouldn't know the good. Well, Glick uh, quotes Socrates and writes about the loss of meaning or logos in reducing living words to ink on a page, and then he writes this. The alphabet was invented only once. That's fascinating. All known alphabets used today uh, or found buried on tablets of stone descend from the same original ancestor. Sometime, not much before 1500 BC, in a region near Palestine. At the top of the page, in green pencil, I scribbled, wow, crucifixion of the word in Palestine. And then I had a heart attack. No kidding. You can see where the green stopped, and in a few pages, I folded up the book and said, honey, I got to go to the hospital. I had a heart attack. I don't know if that's significant, but I think the thought may be significant. Think about it. According to Genesis, Adam, which means humanity, Adam walked with the living word of God in flesh. He walked with the good in flesh in a garden near Palestine, not much more, at least the way the Bible explains it, not much more before 1500 B.C., but Adam and Eve, which is humanity, Adam means humanity, but humanity traded knowing the living good for the knowledge of the good by taking the life of the good from a tree in a garden. In the same way, the Pharisees traded knowing Jesus, the living word, for their knowledge of the written word by taking the life of the word on a tree in a garden. They traded living love in flesh for dead law in a book. They traded the living word of God for the dead word of God. We do that whenever we turn a person into a thing. Whenever we turn love into a law. Whenever we say, God, what do I have to do? Give me some knowledge of good and evil so I know what to do in order to be saved. I think I do it whenever I say, Susan, you're frustrating me. Just tell me what you want me to do. What do you want me to do? But you can't tell me what she wants me to do. Because what she wants is love. Living love in me. Well, I don't know if the invention of the alphabet has anything to do with the fall of humanity and the crucifixion of the word. So make of that what you will. This is, this is my point, that we often prefer dead word written on a page to the living word standing right in front of us because dead words are easier to control. So like I said, I went to see you a free man. I was in control. Part of me really loved Susan, Miss Susan, but part of me really loved me. My self-centered, independent, autonomous, in-control, lonely, old me. Uh, excited about all the girls that I might conquer once I got to Boulder. You see, when I was in Susan's presence, she would conquer me. She'd speak a word. And I'd like melt. And I was really getting concerned that I was losing my autonomy my independent. It, it wasn't that Susan was bad, but that she was so good. I was afraid of losing myself in her. I was afraid of losing me, the self-centered, autonomous, lonely, the restless me. And so we went to college 350 miles apart with freedom to date around. I lost the presence of the living word Susan, but... She wrote letters. Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden. They lost the manifest presence of the living God. But he began to write letters. He sent words. The words looked dead, but they were actually seed. 
He even wrapped his word in flesh. We killed it and placed it in the ground like seed. We thought it was dead. But he was seed. The word is seed. Susan sent letters, and they appeared to be safe. But you see, they were living and active. They were seed. In 1979, they took root in the lonely, broken soil of my heart. In other words, I began to have faith in Susan's love. And, and the faith grew. Faith, hope, and love grew. My love for Susan grew that year more than it ever had before. That year in exile, the year she sent letters. They cut me. They captured me. They applied me to her life. We're all in exile, but, but we've got letters. The Bible's a love letter, so I'm saying read it like one. Let it cut you. Let it capture you. Let it impregnate you. Even let it apply you to God's life. And now I, I, I know what some of you have been thinking. Okay, great, I've heard this analogy before. That's really sweet. Love letters, scented, you know, perfume. The Bible is, is a love letter. But I've read it. It's full of sacrifice, blood, and tears. Touching in places, terrifying throughout. It scares me. This week I read some of the, well, I actually read this letter over again. This one that I saved right up here on top. And when I read it, it scared me. There's a, took a picture of it. She wrote this after I visited her one week and then had to leave. She writes this, after you leave, it's like all that has ever made me happy is taken away. I started to run after you down the hill. I came back to my room and sat in silence trying to fight the tears. I get so tired of fighting the tears. You see, there's tear stains on the letter. I read that the other day, and I got scared for her. She's 19 in this letter. I'm 18. As I read, I realized she's given her heart to an 18-year-old, self-centered, pimply-faced kid who might not return her love. She gave me the power to break her heart. And believe me, I've broken her heart. And God gave you the power to break his heart. God wrapped his word in flesh. And yet to you he gave the power to nail him to a tree. God allowed you to crucify the word in flesh. And you did. But nothing is stronger than the word of God. It is eternal, indestructible seed. But I hope you understand, the revelation of a, of a love like that hurts. A lot of passion in, in that. It hurts the lover and it hurts the beloved. Love hurts until love is returned. And so the scriptures are stained with sacrifice, blood, and tears. Susan's old letters made me scared for her, and Susan's old letters made me scared for me, that old, self-centered, lonely, independent me. Like the love of God in Christ Jesus, his word should make you scared for you, that lonely, old, self-centered, independent you. I went to see you a free man, but love so amazing, so divine, demands my heart, my soul, my all. Look, look how she signed this letter stained with tears. I can't stop the tears any longer. I'm crying because I love you so much. Yours forever, Susan. Holy crap. <laughs> I'm 18. And she signs it, yours forever? I, I realized that if I ignored those letters, they would haunt me the rest of my life. And if I believed those letters, they would judge me right then and there. She signed her letters with tears. 
And God signs his letter with blood. The blood of the eternal, eternal covenant. That's eternal forever kind of love. So we ask, how could the word of God be a love letter? It's full of blood, sacrifice, and tears. But that's exactly the way love letters are. Instruction manuals, self-help books, cookbooks, rule books, study guides are not. I think that's why we like them. They tell you what you must do to make yourself good. But love letters are good, and they make you good. The law tells you what you must do to make yourself good, but the gospel is good, and it cuts to the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Dead words leave you in control, but the word of God is living and active. It cuts you and applies you to his own life. It, it cuts you. Do you remember... When Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden, what God did? At the eastern entrance, at the eastern gate, at the entrance, eastern entrance of the Garden of Eden, he placed a flaming sword that turned every which way. Do you remember what the children of Israel encountered as they approached the promised land out of the wilderness from the east? They encountered this weird God-man with this double-edged sword. When the Jews would come to the temple on the temple mount they would approach from the east and as they approached the sanctuary they would encounter a priest with a machaira the roman short sword and they would hand him a sacrifice he'd cut the sacrifice to the division of joint and marrow lay it naked and exposed upon the altar where it would received be received by god who is holy fire burning love Hunka, hunka, burning love. That's who God is. Present yourself a living sacrifice, writes Paul. For the word of God is living and active, says Hebrews, sharper than any two-edged machaira, piercing the vision of soul and spirit, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Your soul has believed a lie. The lie is that you must take knowledge of the good to make yourself good and therefore, thereby earn God's love. Your old soul is what keeps you constantly restless and imprisons you in fear, but your spirit is the very breath of God. Trapped in that old soul. The word cuts to the vision of soul and spirit. The word cuts away the soul that believes you are your own salvation. And the word of truth is God is salvation. In a name, Jesus. The word is the truth. It's Jesus rising from the dead in you. Dead word that you ingested, now living and active. And so he cuts out your heart of stone. I bet that feels like a heart attack. And he gives you his heart of flesh, his body broken, his blood shed. He's creating faith within you, faith that you are eternally, relentlessly, unconditionally, absolutely loved. When you believe, you will rest. And you will believe. Because nothing is stronger than the word of God. I went to see you, a self-centered, independent, autonomous, and lonely man. And to a very large extent, I still am. But those letters cut me. Right down to the division of faith in love and a lack of faith in love. They discerned the thoughts and intentions of my heart. And before Susan, my heart was naked and exposed. And I finally had to surrender the word, the word of love that had been placed within me. Under the knife, under the knife that was those letters, I was a living sacrifice. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and so I stood before the sacrificial altar. She came down the aisle 
holding the knife, wrapped in a little white leather binding with a gold zipper, the word of God. An old man like a priest in a stone temple, he bellowed, will you give yourself to her in all love and honor and all faithfulness and tenderness to live with her and cherish her according to the ordinance of God, the word of God, until death do you part. with a huge grin on my face, I said, oh yeah, I will, and I do. I gave my life away, and I rested. I rested in her arms as if they were my temple, my sanctuary. In in this physical world of ours, there's no place that I find a deeper rest than in her arms. And do you know why? It's because I believe, I actually believe that I no longer have to earn her love. I just am loved. (sighs) So all my assigned reading in college produced basically nothing. But those love letters ended up producing Jonathan, Elizabeth, Rebecca, Coleman. In other words, I rested in her arms, and (laughs) I don't know how it happened, but fruit happened. I have an idea, (laughs) but I don't consider it work. Now, of course, that's only a picture. So don't get stuck on the picture saying, oh, my picture's not like that. I need to talk about his picture, blah, 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 blah. Don't get stuck on the picture. That's only the sign. The substance belongs to Christ, and Christ belongs to you. You know that your journey ends at a wedding banquet, in a promised land, at a garden that has become a city, and the city is a temple, and the temple is a sanctuary, and the sanctuary is a, a, a bride... Who is you? The word of God rests in you, and you will rest in him when you believe. You cannot make God love you. God is love, and he makes you with his word. You are not salvation. God is salvation. In a word, Jesus, and it is finished. Strive to enter his rest. And so let the word cut you. Let the word comprehend you and know you. At times, it will be confusing. At times, it will be painful. At times, you will suffer. There will be blood, sweat, and tears. But keep reading the letter because you know what the letter means. It means love. It means God is salvation. It means this. And so the word of God in flesh The night that he was betrayed, Paradosis took bread and broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take it, eat it, do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant, the eternal covenant um, in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. We invite you to tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup. The dark cup is wine, the light cup is wine is juice. It looks dead. But it's seed. Amen? Before you leave, I feel like I need to say this. I preached uh, the sermon today as if all the letters and my story with Susan were written, tied up in a bow, and it was finished. But the truth is, we live in space and time still. And that means there's letters still being stacked on top of this, and it's not finished. And this morning, you may look at your life and go, Callie, my life is not tied up neat and tidy like that. Believe me, mine isn't either. I chose to tell the story that way for a point. I mean, it may be that you're, you're maybe on this letter right here in the middle where there's a whole lot of pain and suffering and you're wondering um, what, what the plot to this whole thing is. You see, a stack of letters through time 
comprises a story, and that's what we're going to talk about next time. But the reality is you already know the plot to the story because in the middle of the story, the author has revealed it to you, and the plot is good, and I'm telling you it's a love story. So, so, so keep reading. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are love, and so the only stories you write are love stories. But love stories include pain, they include sacrifice, they include suffering. Help us, Lord God, to have faith in the plot. Thank you, Lord God, that even though um, we run from you, because your glory is more than we can bear in the state that we're in now, thank you that you come after us, you write letters. You send seed, and the seed is not dead. The seed is living and active. In Jesus' name, Lord God, I pray that you would help us to keep reading. Amen. And so, let, let me just say, you, you may look at this, all right, because we're going to talk about the Bible this week and the next two weeks. You may look at this and think to yourself, dang, that is a hard read. And it is a hard read. But when you look at this, I want you to think of this, because this is also a hard read, okay? And if you ask yourself, what does it mean? It means this. And then if you ask yourself, well, what does this mean to me? It means give me a ticket for an airplane. <laughs> Ain't got time to take a fast train. Lonely days are gone. I'm a-going home. My baby, she wrote me a letter. That's what it means. Believe the gospel. Amen. Give me a ticket for an aeroplane. I ain't got time to take no fast train. Oh, the lonely days are gone. And I'm coming home. My baby, she wrote me a letter.